Do you find it's almost impossible to find a relationship that matches up to those romantic visions of relationships we see in the Hollywood movies? If so, stay tuned for today's podcast, because we're going to be talking about the seven types of love known to the Greeks and how they can inspire you to move beyond our current addiction to romantic love that the movies has really instilled in us. And if you want to find out more about how to improve your relationships, head over to therelationshipmaze.com, where we have lots of guides and free resources and our online course to help you build and create more fulfilling relationships. Welcome to today's podcast. Well, today we're going to talk about love. Well, what do you associate with the word love when you first think about it? There are many different contexts in which we can talk about love. We can talk about love, for example, in terms of loving our parents or our siblings. We can talk about love when we think about our best friend and all the kind of loves we have over a cup of coffee or tea. And of course, we often and frequently, and mostly that's the context that we talk about in in our podcast, talk about love in the context of loving our romantic partner. So passionately, intimately, in all all the sort of shapes and forms that we can love our partner. Now, all these different forms of love, they're all driven by affection, by attachment, but they're all slightly different, aren't they? So loving the way the love that you have for your mum, for example, is different from the love that you have for your partner. Well, at least we hope so. Otherwise, there could be all sorts of problems that arise. And sometimes, indeed, there is a bit of a mix-up, as we know, as psychotherapists. So today we're going to look a little bit more in detail these different forms of love and how they play out in your relationship. Yeah, and having that insight into these distinctions can be really helpful because, you know, and I think especially with uh, my experience with, I mean, I think with men, we often, there's that cultural thing not to express your emotion so much anyway. So, you know, it, it's even thinking of in terms of love with friends can be a slightly grey area sometimes because sometimes there's that association like love is one thing, but actually understanding that, you know, love can be different in different contexts can really be quite empowering. It can help you to really experience your relationships in a different way so we don't try to lump everything together into that one word of love. Absolutely. To have a bit more insight into what defines love or what the, what are the different forms of love that we experience also in our relationships. So the ancient Greeks had these seven different forms of love and we're going to talk them through with you now and just kind of, kind of explore the different shades and the different meanings of these different forms of love and also how elements of all of these different seven forms of love are present in our romantic relationships. So the first one is Eros. That's the one that you might be most familiar with, and that's certainly the one that always gets portrayed in Hollywood movies. That's the romantic, passionate love, which is all about lust. It's about pleasure. It's kind of being in the in the arms of passion, basically. It's all about sexual longing and, you know, wanting your partner with you. It's the kind of love that we experience in the early stages of love, in the honeymoon phase of love. And I have talked uh, last week uh, in the last podcast about romantic stages that we, uh, sorry, the, the yeah, the stages that we're going through in our relationships. So the first one is the honeymoon phase. And the honeymoon phase is very much driven by eros yeah and and in that stage as well it's it's one of these stages where you know sometimes we behave in almost rational ways with love and 
and, and, and indeed, you know, when we have that initial attraction, that lust, that kind of that stage of relationship, we have chemicals like oxytocin going through the brain where, you know, it can cloud our judgments. It can impair what we do. It is, it is like a kind of uh, madness. So, uh, and in fact, eros in the Greek times was often not thought of something as particularly positive. It was viewed uh, more as a fiery, as a dangerous and a rational form of love that basically could take hold of you and possess you. Uh, and that was um, something that was a, an idea shared by a lot of different later spiritual thinkers, like um, the author C.S. Lewis. Because um, Eros, actually, with the Greeks, they talked about it involving a loss of control, um, which is which is quite a different dynamic, because a lot of people seek some sort of control and relationship. They seek that sort of stability and control. But there's that confusion between that initial stage where there is like that loss of control, but actually what they really want is often more of that stability, more of, more of a sense of control. Hmm. Yeah, and in the Greek myths, of course, um, you know, Eros, as you say, was very often portrayed as a kind of madness uh, that uh, we fall prey to. And it was brought about by being struck by Cupid's arrow. Cupid is the little angel that kind of throws, shoots the arrows at people when they fall in love. Uh, so that makes us fall in love, but it can also lead to our downfall. And of course, in Greek uh, myths, we know about the downfall of Troy when when uh, the Greek army tried to uh, get Helen, capture Helen, who uh, the hero fell in love with. So there are all sorts of terrible tragedies that ensued as a result of Eros. And Eros was very much contrasted with Logos, which was the which was reason. So you couldn't have both. You couldn't be, you couldn't be in the arms of Eros as, as well as being in the arms of Logos, one or the other. Um, and we need it. We need it because it kind of, it drives us towards it. it uh, it's a, it's a strong motivational force, eros, isn't it? It drives us in the arms of our lover. Yeah, I and mean, another story from I think Greek story was around when the the, the sailors would get washed up on shore and be entranced mm. by the sirens. That's the right, sirens, yes. wasn't it? Where, for men, yeah, 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 and and so basically be captured in this sort of madness, this like mm. passionate state, and lost all sense of their own logic and reason. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Good. So that's eros. That's what we usually, that's our kind of modern construct of love. Very often when we talk about love, then we associate modern romantic love with eros, passionate love. Yeah. And of course, that's where words like erotic come from. Absolutely. Yeah. Yes. Good. So shall we move on to the second one? Yes, let's move on to the second one, which is... uh, Philia. Philia, yeah. Yeah. Do you want to start off with that? Okay, so Philia is more about intimate, authentic friendship. So um, this is something that the Greeks would value much more than that kind of base sexuality of Eros. And this is much more about the deep comradely friendship that was between kind of brothers in arms, maybe who had fought side by side on the battlefield. Um, so this is all about with your friends. It's about having that loyalty with your friends. It's about giving and taking, so sacrificing for them, mm-hmm. uh, but also about sharing your emotions with them. So, mm-hmm. uh, and this is a really important part is, 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 is about that kind of sharing um, it's not just about taking, it's not just about receiving, it's about giving. So it's that two-way two way thing that we have with those friendships. Yeah, so philia is really important in order to develop more intimacy in the relationship. And it's really associated, not necessarily, as you say, with mutual benefit, but very much with, um, you know, being trustworthy, being there for the other, with being being dependable for your partner, 
um, and also just offering companionship to each other, which is just as important. So having your partner as your best friend, so to speak. Yeah, and I think what's important these days, it's not just about having friends for the sake of friends, because too often these days, it's it's almost like you know, a lot of you go to parties where there might be dozens and dozens of people who are kind of quite superficial friends. But this this is deeper than that. So this isn't just just isn't just casual friends and in the day of Facebook and a day of Instagram where you're just trying to get likes or just trying to get friends or you know we see it with influencers you know who want to be liked maybe um mm-hmm. you know who, who want to have all these friends it's you know that that's not that deep friendship so deep friendship maybe tends to be with a few close people it's not with 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 everybody it's those people that you can really share with and they're willing to share back with you Absolutely. And I think what's also important here, talking about uh, the relationship between Eros and Philia, is that they feed into each other. So Philia is born out of Eros. So once you've got this passionate relationship, that can also lead to to this kind of sense of closeness and intimacy that you have with your partner, for example, which in turn can then kind of stoke the passion further as well. So they're kind of interlinked with each other. Yeah. And they're just, they're just together create this really strong bond between two partners. Yeah, although we're, you don't have to have uh, Eros for the affiliates, like with your friends. No, like no your not friends, with you, no, sure. like Close but friends from school, you don't have to have that Eros <laughs> with all of them. No, so absolutely, but I was relating yeah. it back Yeah, to but with relationships, intimate relationships, relationships, very much can be related. And I think also having that underlying basis for someone you can have that deep friendship with is important. So when you're meeting somebody, it's, it's about finding less superficial things that match between you, like the deeper mm. held values. What's what's important to you both in life? Because if you get into a relationship with somebody who you don't share some of your core life values about, those things that are most important to you, most important to your beliefs about society, then it's probably unlikely that you're going to form that deep friendship. So it's always worth thinking about, you know, in a, in a relationship, is this relationship more than just a passion? If you want a long-lasting relationship, there needs to be some sort of commonality in those more important things like values between you yeah and right so yeah and and this actually so philia um also there's another kind of philia which is the next one we're going Mm. to move into which is ludus which is the kind of playful um flirtatious love that uh that we experience when we are when we are, uh, it's kind of part of, I suppose it's part of Eros, it's this idea of having a crush on someone, acting on it. It's the idea of having fun together, doing fun, uh, spontaneous, uh, funny things together. Um, it's also, it can be also the kind of love that you experience when you're having a fling, which is kind of casual, more sexual, exciting, with kind of no obligations attached to it. Um, and I'm also thinking of Ludus. It reminds me a little bit of what we've talked about in an earlier podcast as well. We talked about transaction analysis and ego states. For those of you who've listened to previous podcasts, it's this, uh, it's the idea that the child in us comes out to play, you know, this sort of playful, playful association with kind of having, having fun, not, not having any sort of strings attached and just enjoying the moment. Yeah, and so this can be also sort of uh, the play between children. So it's not just between in a relationship, it's also children playing. It's that sort of like um, playful affection between children. Or, or uh, you know, in the early stage of relationship, like Angela said, it could be that sort of flirtatiousness. But also, you know, when you're sitting in a bar laughing with friends, mm-hmm. going out dancing, that's also examples of, 
of that ludus. Mm. Um, and, you know, it might be that basically dancing with strangers could also be like an, a ludic activity, mm. so which can be uh, a substitute for, uh, you know, some of that eros sort of uh, feeling as well. Um, and, you know, basically social norms often frown, frown upon this because, mm. uh, b- because it's like that frivolity. Mm. Um, but, you know, some ludos, and no, you're not talking about the sense of flings, because that's mm. one more extreme example, but yeah. uh, experiencing ludos in, in a more fun, playful way, yeah. uh, where we're not kind of breaching those kind of boundaries with our partner is basically is something that we can all do with. So it's it's about, you know, that, that finding that right sort of quality and that kind of, you know, what works for you. But it's a really important, you know, even with your partner, Absolutely. you can still have that playfulness. You can have that flirtatiousness. And, mm. you know, if you've been with your partner for a, a number of years... And right now, think, you know, what could you do to be more flirtatious with your partner? What could you do to be more playful? How could you add some play with your partner? And when you find that, you know, again, that's that also can make it less likely that there will be these urges to to kind of like stray from your relationship, which sometimes happens because mm-hmm. you know, when that playfulness is lost from a relationship, those might be the times when you know mm-hmm. the, the, the partner, your partner, kind of does want to look for something Absolutely. outside to get that playfulness. But but it, it doesn't have to happen. But it will happen unless you actually put the work into it and actually really think because mm-hmm. you know it's so often that relationships get stale because we don't think we need to keep working at it. But by working at it. And I'm talking about working to have playfulness. Yeah, to build it, <clears throat> to build it into your relationship, because it's also a sign of maturity, isn't it? It's a sign of a mature relationship if you, if you can, can continue to be playful with each other, if you can uh, do activities together that are enjoyable, for example. Yeah. If you have uh, an active sexual life, that is another aspect of it. So it is about sort of finding some ways of keeping. Um, Keeping the original flame that is started off by Eros going, uh, but transforming it into a into a more sort of joyful, fun experience that keeps you bonded. Absolutely. When you talk about like maturity in relationship, again, it's it's that kind of almost dichotomy because this is about mm. playfulness. It's mm. about being able to be childlike, but not childish, maybe, or kind of just being able to kind of bring that child part of you to life in the relationship in a more playful way as well. Yeah, absolutely. Good. So let's move on to uh, the uh, fourth form. Is it the fourth one that we're on now, which is store, Storgi or Storgi. I'm not quite sure how to pronounce it. Storge. 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 Sorry, I'm not sure how to pronounce it in Greek, unfortunately. So that's the kind of form of um, familial love. That's the kind of Philia, so the friendship type of love that we are reserving for um, our parents and our siblings. So it's the idea that we are uh, that we have a fondness for each other, which is born out of familiarity or dependency when it comes to our relationship with our parents. So there, it's much more contingent, uh, so much more less contingent on our personal qualities. Uh, and uh, people in the early stages of a romantic relationship um, often expect that there's unconditional storge, yeah, that they are, that their partner is there for them in the same way that mom and dad might be available for them. There's often this this unspoken and unconscious desire to have the same kind of love with your partner that you have with your parents, and the same sort of dependency needs that are born out of that as well. 
So eros in time basically can develop into storge. I, st I still <laughs> struggle to pronounce it. I'm sorry. Um, storge, storge. How do you pronounce it? Uh, I think it's storge. Storge. I could be wrong. Sorry. No, that's, uh, that, that, sounds more, that sounds more right. Yeah. So it's, been, it's also another, an example of this is that, you know, if you have, if you have siblings, it's like, you might you, you you might kind of uh, not like your brother a lot of the time or sister, but you know it's still you kind of have that bond, you have that love for them, um, you know. And I've seen seen that with people and their parents is that you know they might not like their parents, but they still mm. feel that sense of yeah. kind of love or some that unconditional familial love for them and loyalty, I suppose. Yeah, loyalty can be part of that, and and sometimes that can be a problem as well. It's mm. like you know sometimes. You know, sometimes there are there are situations where people are treated very badly by the parents or the family, but that loyalty stops them from making that breaking that tie, which for sometimes you know leads to the fact that they experience a lot of abuse or kind of yeah. feel bad feelings about themselves. When you know maybe the best thing would be, um, you know, one possibility would be for them to kind of cut that tie. And I'm only talking about yeah. more extreme situations. No, no, absolutely. I mean, there are certainly situations where uh, for some people it's better to to kind of almost give up on this kind of kinship-based love because mm. it doesn't serve them very well because they might have had extremely abusive parents, for example, or mm. abusive siblings, and actually hanging on to this to this kind of love can be very, very painful yeah. and, not and can really get in the way of self-growth as well. Yeah, and interestingly, we can also see this in sort of patriotism mm -hmm. uh, and sort of allegiance to a team is that, you know, in sort of patriotism, which in the UK we've seen recently when Brexit came up is yeah. you have like sort of half the country that suddenly um, this patriotism, this sort of, uh, this sort of, um, that this sort of a kind of loyalty towards the country in a similar way that you might with a, a family, mm. um, which sometimes you know, clouds our judgment in things that might be more logical choices. Absolutely. Yeah. Good, yeah. So let's move on to the next form of love, agape. Um, that's the love that you have for everyone, for every person in the universe, for every stranger, for nature or for God as well. It's a sort of universal love that we have. Um, and it's not dependent on um, uh, affiliation with anyone. It's not dependent on whether I have any kind of connection with another person. It's not uh, uh, contingent on familiarity. So it's very often uh, in the context of Christian thinking, for example, it's uh, related to this idea of uh, altruism, the concept of altruism that you are, um, that you have this unselfish concern for the welfare of other people. Yeah, I think actually in most religions this is a theme, but it's right. it's something that's quite a, a powerful sort of love, which basically it can be quite challenging to think about, which, you know, in the Greek terms, it was probably the most radical. So it's it's having that love towards everybody. And um, agape was translated into Latin as caritas, which is the origin of the word charity. So it's about mm. sort of charity, giving. And uh, the author C.S. Lewis actually talked about it as gift love which is um the highest form of christian love but like i said it's in all religions in fact if you kind of read the what writings of the dalai lama or buddhism you see this is fundamentally the theme that really it is within buddhism so uh in buddhism it's sometimes talked about the idea of metta which is universal loving kindness um and basically we see you know we see that uh, these days that this 
agape is unfortunately declining. So some studies suggest that there's been a huge decline over the past 40 years, um, that basically this caring for strangers, unfortunately, has to some extent been lost with large sections sections of society. Although I think I think at the same time, I think some areas it's, it's developed, but I think there's been a disparity. Mm. And I think one of the most important things is you know, if if we want to be loved, then show love, which is something very close to what the Dalai Lama said in some of his writings. Mm. So kind of having that feeling of love, I mean, it's sort of, you know, if you go into a place you've never been to before, say for work or to live, um, and, you know, you want to be welcomed, we have to also show that we're welcoming. Mm. So it's very much about that giving, that you know, what we give off is also what we receive. Uh, and, and I think very much a lot of the time is when people don't have agape when they're not able to have that sort of selfless love it comes down to fear Mm. is that fear of being hurt fear of rejection or kind of all these different emotions that that might get in the way of of really being open to that that's a really good point i'm also mindful it's also i'm mindful of how this links to um the idea of random acts of kindness in positive psychology where a lot of research has shown that uh, one thing that makes you feel really good about yourself, or one you know, one thing that you can do in order to feel good about yourself, is to <clears throat> to do random acts of kindness during the week, where you do something something positive, something generous, helping another person, because this kind of altruistic act makes you feel very good about yourself, and it can actually generate a very euphoric feeling, a very positive feeling. So random acts of kindness is something that's often uh, recommended for somebody who struggles with depression, for example. Yeah. So there is a link here, agape, is this kind of love, being open to other people and being able to give to other people, also is associated with better mental health and physical health generally within yourself. Yeah, so one thing you could do right now is think about what could what random act of kindness could you do today? Mm. So it could be like helping someone with their shopping, just holding a door open for someone, just making paying a compliment to someone, helping mm. out a neighbour. Yeah. And these things sort of, you know, because when it happens to you as well, remember how good it feels when someone does that for you. And just remember you're doing that for the other person. And although some people may not show appreciation overtly, it doesn't mean they don't feel it. Mm. Um, but those that do, it, they will end up feeling better, which means that affects how they behave in the day, which means they're more likely to show some kindness to other people. I've seen this even driving. It's like sometimes mm. driving along, you know, someone's trying to get out onto the road, you let them onto the road then that person lets someone else out because they've had that done for them. So it's like a ripple effect is that random acts of kindness can can spread out um, far beyond the person that you helped. Yeah, good. Okay, <clears throat> so shall we move on to our next uh, Greek way of form of love or type of love, which is philoftia. That's the kind of self-love, which can be uh, healthy or unhealthy, depending on how you look at it. So it's the love of yourself. Um, so if it's unhealthy um, self-love, then it can be a form of hubris. In ancient Greece, people were talking about hubris. That's if they, if somebody kind of rated themselves higher than the gods. Um, and that's obviously something that frequently plays out in our modern world as well. We see that with politicians very often who place themselves above gods. Um, so the sort of negative part of philoftia is it's almost a sort of narcissistic love as well. Yeah, Having too much regard for yourself, being too uh, arrogant, too convinced of yourself, and having a very inflated sense of self. 
which obviously gets in the way of uh, creating positive relationships. So that's the sort of unhealthy side of philoftia. The positive side, you want to talk about that, John? Yeah, so the pos- positive side is basically, it's about enhancing your wider capacity to love. So if you like yourself and feel secure in yourself, that means that we're more likely to have plenty of love to give to other people. Because as I mentioned in the the last stage we talked about it, sometimes fears, sometimes our kind of the negative beliefs we have about ourselves cause us to inhibit giving to other people as well. Mm-hmm. So when we like ourselves, when we feel secure, we're able to share kind of those feelings outwardly as well. So um, this is so important. Aristotle said, all of our friendly feelings for other people are an extension of a man's feeling for himself. So himself or herself. Um, so, you know, and, and, and this is really important is that, you know, abandoning, abandoning our obsession to be perfect is a key with this. Mm-hmm. You know, in terms of where, with our partner, if we, if we want our partner to be the perfect partner, then that can be really problematic. Mm-hmm. So we can't expect our partner to offer every variety of love all of the time. You know, relationships may begin with plenty of the eros and eludus, then they move more towards embodying the pragna or agape. So we kind of move through these different stages, but we don't have them all the time. Mm. Um, so this this can be really important to re- really kind of dig into yourself and think, you know, what are those things that might stop us from really being able to love ourselves? Because when you love yourselves, you, you can accept love more. You know, mm. it's like when we don't feel we love ourselves, even if our partner says, you know, you're such a great person mm. or, you know, you're looking great today, you might not really believe it. Mm. So it's those sort of self-doubts, those messages from your past that may interfere with your ability to kind of feel that self-love. But when you feel that self-love, when you really feel good about yourself, then you, you feel much more able to give that love to someone else. Yeah, and it creates different dependency needs as well, doesn't it? If you love yourself, you can also use yourself as a source of uh, of soothing, self-soothing if that's needed, you know, looking after yourself. Of course, you can always ask your partner and you should always be in a position to ask your partner to, to get that kind of emotional support. But if you love yourself, you can also give some of that to yourself. You are less uh, reliant on always... Um, asking your partner for for offering this to you, so you have the kind of the sense of a strong sense of self, uh, which is more complete and doesn't necessarily require the other person to be to become a whole person. You're already a whole person yourself. Yeah, absolutely. And and moving beyond that as well is that um, you know in our partner we don't we. Like I'm saying, we don't need to see all of these different elements of love there because some of these were the friendships we find with friends. So it's, it's, it's like we don't try to embody everything in our partner. So it's about having that kind of closeness, but also that sort of separateness at times as well. So um, you basically, you know, if you want to spend time with your friends, then you could cultivate the filia by spending time with old friends. Uh, you know, with your partner, you may ha- you might sometimes time have more of the eros. You might have some of the different feelings as well. Mm. Um, you know, things like ludus. You might just um, experience fried dancing one night. Mm. So it doesn't have to be particularly with um, in, in anything more than kind of that playfulness, but just being out in a situation where you're dancing, you can experience that playfulness. Yeah. Um, yeah. Good. Okay, so I think that brings us to the last uh, type of love. Is that the last one? That oh, yeah, that's here? right. Uh, which is pragma. That's the kind of 
pragma, you might recognize that word from pragmatism, there's the connection here, is this kind of a long-standing love, it's a kind of practical love, which is more founded on reason, on duty, on kind of longer-term interests. And that's the kind of love that's driven by maybe thinking about, you know, common goals that we have with our partner. So looking, what what is it that we want to do next year? It's looking ahead. Um, it's also kind of, um, it's less about sexual attraction, so that's kind of taking a backseat within the context of pragma. It's more about making it work. How, how can we make it work? It's interesting, for example, in, um, you know, when we're talking about arranged marriages, for example, then pragma is probably very common because it's very much uh, driven by these kinds of concerns. It's more concerned with, you know, uh, with the sense of duty, I suppose, or or sort of, you know, how can this work on a practical uh, level? How can we make this relationship work? So lots of relationships, of course, start off with eros. We've talked with ludos. But there comes a point when you also have to kind of make these kind of practical decisions about, for example, having children. Very often that. That's not only driven by love, that also has some practical considerations that come into play. Um, buying a house together yeah, requires pragma, how are we going to go about it? Managing money is something um, that is frequently discussed in many, many relationships, and that's driven about uh, pragma, how do we negotiate our way around managing our joint bank accounts, for example, or joint funds. Yeah, and, and this was actually also this concept popularised by the Canadian sociologist John Allen Lee back in the 1970s, uh, who described it as a mature and realistic love that's commonly found amongst long-established couples. Mm-hmm. And this is all about making compromises. So as Angela said, so it's about compromises to help them relationship work over time. Mm-hmm. That What's really important here is the concepts of patience and tolerance. Mm-hmm. Um, the psychoanalyst Eric Fromm actually said that we expand, expend too much energy falling in love. Mm-hmm. Uh, and actually what we really need to put more energy into is standing in love. Because this is all about standing in love. It's about making an effort to give love rather than just receive it. Mm-hmm. So I think that's, I'll say that again actually, because I think it's so important. It's about making an effort to give love rather than just receive it. So in a relationship, not just thinking, I want to be loved, I want to be loved, I need to be loved. It's about thinking, actually, I need to give love. Mm. And because so many relationships do end in divorce or separation in the first 10 years, you know, this is such an important thing to bring into relationships, this this pragma. Mm. And again, it combines with some of the other things we talked about, some of the other stages where, mm. or some of the other sort of, you know, some of the other elements of love where, mm. you know, it is about that unconditional giving as well. So we need to give to receive. And this very much comes into this as well. Mm. And it links back to, again, to uh, the previous podcast from last week, the, the, the sort of last stage of uh, relationships, which is the sort of the union, a level of maturity. This is the sort of, this is the stage of relationship where you're learning to compromise a little bit more, to accept that you might have different ideas about the world, but that's okay. And actually that's quite acceptable. There is a way, there's a way forward here. There's a way together, to grow together as a couple to respect each other, to cherish difference in the relationship, for example, um, and to kind of, um, to honour each other as partners. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, just, it can be really interesting to explore about, 
you know, what, what, um, how, to what extent are these six loves present, well, seven loves we talked mm. about present in your life? Mm. Uh, and you may find that actually, you know, you have a lot more love in your life than you thought, because mm. sometimes we don't acknowledge those elements. And, mm. and also in your relationships, how could you use some of these things to build more love? And, yeah. you know, again, a lot of this comes down to, you know, love, being able to accept yourself, loving yourself, being able to, Give love and receive love. Mm. Yeah, um, it'd be really. It's actually quite a useful tool, isn't it, to assess. Mm. Well, what is it? Is there an element here? Is there a type of love that uh, the ancient Greeks describe that uh, might be a little bit in, imbalanced in our relationship? Mm. Do we need to have a bit more pragma rather than eros? Do we need to introduce a bit more ludus, a bit more playful time? Do we um, do we also you know are we are we considerate enough of each other etc. And also how do we relate as a couple? How do we relate to the wider world out there? How do we interact with friends, family, with with other people, the the universe uh, at large? Yeah, absolutely. So I think we've got to the end of uh, today's podcast. Unless there's anything you want to add? No, I think that's, I think we said what we needed to say on that topic. Excellent. So please. Please subscribe to our podcast, please like it, share it with a friend, and if you want to find out anything more about how to improve your relationships, head over to therelationshipmaze.com. We look forward to seeing you next week. Bye. Bye.